chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. James is not, is not a jolly guy either. We notice that? He's not Mr. Happy. He's Mr. Realistic. So, listen to the word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Tough text. By the way, that was harsh, Jim. I'm sorry. (laughs) I wasn't wrong. It was just harsh. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I can't hear you. Uh, (laughs) I'm just really speaking of harsh words. They are harsh words, but they weren't wrong. They needed to be spoken. Why? Well, James is pastoring his little church, and it's a little church like any other little church. It has problems. And what he's doing is he's, he's assembling and tuning up that car. He's not leaving out things that need to be tuned up. So it, it, along the way, if we, if we look at the church as a church, he's addressing relationships with God, and that comes first and foremost. But then he's also talking a lot about the relationships with people, and, and those relationships, it's not simply in terms of guarding vocabulary. That, that's not the key problem here. The problem here is, is what's in that person's heart, or yours. What are you thinking of that other person? What do you think of yourself? And then at the real center of it, like Cheryl get bought bought some treats uh, this past week, so it it had a a dark chocolate like uh, circle with a little hazelnut in the middle. And right? so there's something on the inside. And if you're like me, you're crazy about hazelnuts. I just mm-hmm. love them. So I could do, I'm okay without the chocolate, but I want to get that hazelnut. So in the book of James, James is talking about what's on the outside, but always in reference to what's going on on the inside. Never leaves that out of the picture. We make mistakes about uh, books like James. I mean, Luther did it. Because you are basically saying uh, it's all about your behavior. You do this and you don't do that. And, and that's the heart of the matter. But it isn't the heart of the matter. Like my, my mentor, Henry Krabendam, always said, it's, 
the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And that's what James is actually doing. When he addresses your outward behavior, what he's doing is he's helping you reflect on the relationship that you have God going on the inside. Question that I ask in, I think it's in the outline, who do you really trust? Because that's the core issue. That's the core issue for any Christian, any human. Even if you're not a Christian, you still have the same issue, right? So who do you trust? Now, before, before I came to know Christ, I trusted <coughs> me. I did not trust my mother. I did not trust my father. I had no one else that I thought I could trust, and I trusted myself. Anyone that grew, it, it doesn't even matter what kind of growing up you had. If you had a life like mine, you learn not to trust. So it becomes second nature for you not to. You don't trust in relationships as a, a, a normal course of things. But then, of course, we're, we, we come to Christ. He calls us out of that life, calls us into a new life. We make decisions, we get baptized, we join churches. Same question. Who do you trust? That is the question. James approaches the issue of your, our relationship to God through the way we treat one another, through the way we, uh, we uh, comply with God. But the point of it is always to get to the, ha- get to the matter of the heart. The uh, Belgic Confession, if you don't know what that is, so back in the Reformation time, you had confessions of faith. The earliest of those was the Belgic Confession, 1561. And uh, so it was written in Belgium, but it's a, a Reformed Confession. I want to read you a little bit of what, um, about what it says about how you know God. If you get a chance, you can download it for nothing. Right? It's free. Belgic Confession. Quote, We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. In other words, you can look out there and, and see it. Right? General revelation is what we call that. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book, in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. God's eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All these things are enough to convict humans and leave them without excuse. Second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word. As much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. That's, that's the fundamental foundation of knowing God. More foundational in your experience is God's word. His revelation is the foundation for all truth, all knowledge, everything. So the one that pays attention to that word, that, that learns that word, that trusts that word, 
knows God. Now, it's not a rash promise. It's like saying you can know everything about God because you've read his word. No, I fear, like John Calvin, the, the reformer, said that uh, when God wrote his Bible, it was though he, were, uh, he was speaking baby talk to us. He treats us like infants, so he stoops low and, and baby talks us so that we'll understand what he, what he means. It's his way of loving us. So I don't, I don't think, you know, the confession is saying we know everything there is to know that way. But he's saying the foundation for all of your knowledge, the things that you can be sure about with God are, are located in the word. It's at the center. So there's an implication there. When we live by God's law or his word, we reflect God to everyone else. When we live by it, we're reflecting God to others. When we abuse others, we misrepresent God and we're judged accordingly. You cannot claim, in other words, to say that you know God and you disregard his word. Can't do it. Now, you know the Bible understands that we're sinners, and, and that's why there's so much provision made in the Bible for, for uh, confession, for example, and repentance. It, it's, it's a popular theme, right? Because God knows that about us already. But the foundation that James is making here in, his, in this letter is that when we're living according to the commands of God, the things he tells us to do, we are actually functioning as a mirror. You're reflecting God to others. You're reflecting Christ to others. And likewise, when we misrepresent God, we're not only frauds, but we actually paint the wrong picture about God. We misrepresent him. So James is about practical living that's grounded in our eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the simple purpose of James. That's what the whole book is basically about. Practical living grounded in our eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. It isn't the idea that you work yourself into that relationship. That, that uh, you, you climb the ladder of success. Or like in the early church, the monks called that the ladder of divine ascent. This is not what we're describing here. We're describing sinners saved by the grace of God who then, who then grow in their knowledge of God and it's lived out uh, as they practice what they learn in the world around them. And, and likewise, those who neglect or manhandle others are ignoring God. It's also true. So if you beat up people or you mistreat them or misrepresent them, mischaracterize them, slander them or whatever it is, you're not only doing a bad thing for yourself, but you're misrepresenting the God you say you serve. James's point. Verses 1 to 3, 
I didn't know what else to say about it, so I just said, you can't take it with you. I mean, it's trite, but it happens to be true, right? I mean, you can't take those things. It doesn't even matter what the things are. Like, you could, you could sort of angle it into trying making a virtue out of, out of, say, loving your family. But you're not actually told to love your family more than you're told to love God. Because when you do, that turns you into an idol worshiper. If, if you fear your children or love your children more than you do God, you're an idolater. <coughs> Boom. Not very nice, but it's the truth. You can't take any of these things with you. He's really striking in verse 1. Do you see that? Come now, you rich. So he is targeting some people here. He's targeting people with stuff. Now, the implication in James is that the people that have this stuff are not people that um, gambled in the stock market. It's talking about the wealthy who have wealthy positions, um, big name families, and all of that sort of stuff. And they learn how to trust it. They feel secure on the basis of what they got, of what they have. But James said his really, I mean, it boom hits him. The rich should howl and weep. Now, if I was picking out rich people, I'd say, well, how many of them howl and weep? Well, I'd say, not a lot. If I asked people, how about the rest of you that are not rich, how many of you howl and weep? It, the answer is actually the same answer, right? All of, a few of us are so concerned about what we put our trust in. Whether you've got money or you don't have money. I, I grew up relatively poor. We worship money. Because we didn't have it. It's really what we wanted. So you had to do whatever you could do to get it. Your parents sent you to college not so that you would be enlightened. <coughs> Me, I was reading books constantly. Uh, did, is that why mom and dad said you're going to college? No, it's so that you have a lot more money than they have when you grow up. You're secure. My relatives were all refugees. You would think that would be pretty normal, wouldn't it, to say, I want my children to have a better life than I do. <coughs> Can that become an idol? Yeah, absolutely, yes. <coughs> and my parents did not seem to have a concern for my future by, by making sure that I love the Lord. That was not in the forefront of their thinking. The secure, physical security, monetary security, had more to do with it than that. And then, and then the, uh, it's interesting, the miseries that are coming upon you. You see it in the text? Weep and howl for the miseries. <coughs> I was trying to think, what does that mean? Lose their security blankets. But you're going to be miserable. I thought, you know what I thought of? I, I thought of Ebenezer Scrooge, who, who scrimped, stole money from other people, 
He didn't care if they starved. He didn't care if they died in the streets, homeless. <coughs> it had nothing to do with him. He cheated his partner, Jacob Marley, out of everything he was owed. And Marley died a terrible death, as it happens. <coughs> Scrooge worshipped security. There's a story when Scrooge is, um, you know, living at this boarding school. And everybody goes home for Christmas except him. He had no one to take him in. And that misery, feeling abandoned and insecure, twisted him into such a way that all he ever wanted to do from then on was never be alone again, never be without things again, never be insecure or afraid again. Turned him into a monster. It does the same for any person. And then the story moves on and we see how Ebenezer Scrooge is redeemed. I could tell a whole gospel story based on this because his whole life flips because he stops having to, to trust himself and it changes him. Same truth for him, the same truth for you and me. In, number, in uh, verse 2, riches are rotted and garments are moth-eaten. I don't know how easy it is for you, you and I to normally like grasp exactly what this means. I mean, on the surface, it means something, right? Because we know moths eat our stuff. So here I was putting cedar blocks or whatever it is that you do to keep, keep stuff Keep little critters from eating your things that you wear. Montana is a very informal state. Of all the states we lived in, it's probably the least formal one. So that means if you're a very wealthy person, you don't dress like a very wealthy person. You're, you're casual all of the time. Now, you could have a hoard of money, but somebody would look at you and not know that. And, and you could be somebody without a lot of money and dress the same way. That's the way we are. It, it, it makes more sense to me, like when we lived in Europe for 14 years, especially in, in England for seven. If you're a Brit, you dress according to your status. You have high, and they don't really care about money. They care about education. You went to Oxford, you went to Cambridge, you dressed accordingly. And if you had an, ac an accent that sounded like, you know, you were from some slum someplace, you learn how to hide it. You never sound like you came from East London. You always sound what Brits say, posh. You learn to cover it up. You talk a different way, you speak differently than you did before, you dress differently. So here, you're, you're talking about clothing. Ancient people were not modest in the sense of hiding their wealth. They would brag about it. Women especially, wives with, with, with gold rings, loads of necklaces, earrings, uh, crowns, even, even though they're not 
royalty, they would show their wealth. It still happens when I go in the Muslim world, like in, uh, especially in Arabia, but also even in Bangladesh and East Asia, um, you wear your wealth. <coughs> that could be fine silk, but if you're, really, if you're really loaded, if you got a lot more than that, you're also wearing lots of jewelry. So here you can see something analogous to that. You wear beautiful clothing. It designates your class. But God is, is wearing holes through all of it because it doesn't last. That's another way of saying the reputation you had, too. That also doesn't last. Wave it goodbye. As James is just saying there are other things that are more valuable. They're more important than that stuff. I know maybe something I was thinking about this morning. The fate of garments is buried with their owners. They don't outlast you. When somebody dies and you, you lay them in a tomb somewhere, you dress them up. I know when my grandparents and my parents died, they all, all dressed up nice. But they're still going in a box and they're still ending up in the same ground where, where they will be eaten. James is just saying, your stuff is not going to help you. He, he, that example is pretty clear, I think, but he goes even further with it because he talks about, if you have the English Standard Version Bible, it uses a word corroded. There is no such word in, in Greek. The, the word is really rusted. But it doesn't really work very well because it's talking about gold and silver, and they don't rust. They just get eaten away sometimes. But gold, very hard to do that. If gold is pure, gold can last for, it goes on and on and on. It, it, it doesn't corrode. Silver can, but it's hard to do. It, it needs to be mistreated for it to take place. You need oxidation for corrosion. And if you don't have it, you don't have corrosion. What James is saying here is you will, your stuff will corrode. If you've placed all of your hopes for your present and your future and your stuff, it will corrode. It will all break down and dissolve. None of it will last. That's all he's trying to say. He, he does actually go, go slightly further, though, in verse 3. So he talks about gold and silver. He talks about corrosion. But did you notice that in the second half of that verse? And will eat your flesh like fire. I was wondering, like, I was noticing some rust on my grill when I was cooking a couple of days ago on, the, on the, my old gas grill. So I scrub it and try and, get, try and get the rust off of it. But if I put my hand on that grill when it's cooled down, I, it doesn't corrode me. 
But what James is saying here in the text is, is that love of those things and that trusting of those things for your life will corrode your heart. They will eat you from, it will eat you from the inside out. It will hollow you out. Does that make sense? I think that's really what he's trying to say. So the things that you place your trust in, these material things, don't last. They're not, what's he saying? He's just saying these are not eternal. Only God is eternal. So if you're trying to cling to anything other than God, you're a fool. Because none of those things are things you can take with you and none of those things can save you. Only God can do that. God is eternal. All these other things are temporal. They're created by time and in time. Things get rusty or corrode because of impurities in them. So there is a practical application here. Practical application that James is making is what do you have that leads to corrosion in you? What corrodes you? What eats you up? I talked to, was talking to a friend uh, last week maybe, and a relationship was eating them up. And they couldn't get away from it. it. It was hurting. It was damaging their perspective. It, it ruined their hope. It, it um, changed their horizons so they couldn't see out there anymore. All they could see was this pain right, right in front of their face. Couldn't get around it. James is just saying material things serve in the same way. So you obsess about those things, the good life. You can look at me. You know, I like food. I, I also like liquid food. But I can't take that with me either. So if that, my passion has to do with those things, then I'm in big trouble. The question behind the question, of course, is what do you value more than God? What are you valuing? The fact that you came to church today does not te- is not significant enough to tell me that, you, that you're not placing a trust in something else. We play both sides of the street at the same time. It's common for us. So what, what is it that you value more than God. When I became a Christian, in professing Christian in 1973, I had a conflict because I knew I was going to have to go home for the holidays. And I was going to tell my parents that I have this love relationship with Jesus Christ. And I was, I was not smart enough to even know how to say that. But I knew that when my mom heard it, she would ignore it. She'd just say, that's nice, honey, or whatever. But I knew that my father, who, who was a borderline atheist, when he, he wasn't an atheist because he hated God. 
right? But I knew when he heard it that, that it was going to be bad. And in fact, it really was bad. So before I went home, I had to think, what do I tell them? Plus, I get all these friends from high school. You played, I played baseball, I played football, I ran track. You, you're going to, what I, what I tell those guys? What would you tell your friends, right, kids? What would you tell yours? But I think my faith was actually real, so, I, so when it came down to it, I had to say something about Jesus Christ. My conscience wasn't going to let me rest by trying to hide it or ignore it, so I told him. And then I survived the experience. Verses 4 to 6, your greed demonstrates what, who you really worship. I think that's really the point here. Like, who do you actually worship? What do you worship? It could be a thing, right? It could be a relationship. It could be comfort. All of those things. Security. Anything that you, like, erase the word God from and put that in its place is something you worship. In verse 4, he gets down and dirty, uh, James. You're withholding money basically from your harvesters, right? So you own a lot of land, you've got the workers working for you, and, and you're stealing from them because you're not paying them the wage they're supposed to have. It, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of fraud, but, but you perpetrate it on these people that are working for you. And the reason you do it is because you don't think you have enough. You have to have more because you're not secure. So you need to get secure. But the only way you can get secure is by hurting somebody else. But that's exactly what they were doing. In Deuteronomy 24, 14 to 15, God hears the cries of workers against landowners. And, and this is what it says in Deuteronomy you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your own brothers or one of the sojourners, travelers, who are in your land within your town. You shall give him his wages on the same day. You don't delay paying the guy. Before the sun sets, it's it, pretty picky, right? Because he's poor and he counts on that money. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you will be guilty of sin. So there's a warning in Deuteronomy about don't mess with other people because you are not entitled to their wealth. Only your own. Verse 5, that's the implication of verse 5. You, you indulge yourself at the expense of other people. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Kind of ironic. I don't know if James meant it to be ironic, but it sure sounds ironic. Because it sounds like you're fattening up yourself for the day of slaughter. You're going to be the victim, not somebody else. And then verse 6, you condemn and kill the innocent. It's interesting, James James does not let on that he's using language metaphorically or symbolically. He just says it plain. 
Uh, the way I understand it is, it isn't as though the rich guy goes into the poor guy's house, takes his knife out and stabs him. I don't think that's right. But the but but the uh, consequences of what the rich guy does by neglecting the poor guy can lead to his death. And in fact, we know it happens. So in this case, in that's what he's pointing out. You condemn and kill the innocent. And what, is the, what does the innocent do? He's just a victim. He just takes it. He doesn't fight you. I used to wonder, you know, as you watch these movies that have uh, about the Holocaust, for example. And you go, why, why, didn't, why didn't they just rise up and attack all the guards. They're going to die anyway. Why, why not do that? But very seldom did that happen. The odds are against you. The other people are armed. You, you lose your hope. You are hopeless. By the time you reach a camp and they decide they don't want to kill you right away, you, you may decide at that point that you're not going to die, that you're going to try and find a way to live through this. But when you're on that train headed to Auschwitz or one of the other camps, you despair. Likewise, when the, when the rich torment and steal from the poor in this situation, the victims do lay down and take it. Oh, I always thought that was interesting too, you know. So we went in the middle of COVID or maybe right after that, people go, well, people try and take away my rights. I've got guns. I'm going to use them. Oh, yeah? I'm waiting. Really? You're, gonna, you're, you're really going to do it? That's big talk. But when it comes down to taking on that kind of power, most normal people don't. They just take it. What James does with it, he says, the responsibility is not to that poor person for fighting you. The responsibility is for you that have the power and the wealth not to abuse other people. To reflect God's generosity in, in the way you treat others. If you're a Christian, you act like a Christian when you look and sound and act like Jesus. Right? That's the mark of the Christian. And Francis Schaeffer was talking about love when he, when he wrote a little book on the mark of a Christian. It's love. And it's real. I wanted to end with a practical way of dealing with our idols, but, but our temptations to try and find our security in the things we have. And we're going to talk about it more later in the year in much more detail. But I wanted to share a few words from a few other wise men, not me. Well, I guess I discounted myself already, but um, on the wisdom in giving 
So you want to know, like, what's practical about this? Okay, I shouldn't worship this and that. How do I do that? One logical way of dealing with your, with your addiction to things, for instance, or even relationships, is to give to God. Tim Keller issues a kind of a warning. He says, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but they're God's. So it's already God's. So that means you're a thief if you keep it back. Another way that I, I, the way I interpreted what Tim was saying is that when you, when you withhold generosity from others, or the church for that matter, people have a much harder time seeing Jesus because you got in the way. Three practical approaches for giving, and we'll end with this. And I'm just going to more or less list them. The first is from Kevin DeYoung, who is a prominent minister in our denomination, the PCA. And he has this thing called a plan principle. So if you want me to send you my notes, uh, I will do that. But I've always encouraged everybody to take notes. Plan principle. First, pray for a generous heart so that, so that the beginning of, of giving that honors God is to pray about it. Pray for that heart. Second, L is lifestyle cap. And he's really addressing people that, who, who maybe earn more money than they had but it's learning how to maintain the same lifestyle you had before you made a lot of money, right? And that, that frees up resources for you to give. The guy that, um, that was responsible for me joining my, this denomination, the PCA, was Frank Barker. So um, when you saw Frank, he only had two colors of suits. Now, he was pastoring a 6,500 member church. It was one of the wealthiest churches in the city of Birmingham. And he had a tan suit that he reserved for the summertime. And he had a navy suit. He had four or five of them, but they were identical suits. White shirt, dark tie, black socks, black shoes. He didn't want fancy clothes because then he'd have to worry about what he was wearing. So he'd get up every day and put on the same sort of thing. When it came to his salary, his elders and the rest of the church offered him a salary more than two times the amount he was willing to take. So the amount that he started making in the mid-1960s was the same amount he was making into the 1990s. He was making less money than, than any middle class person in his church. All the rest of the money, he said, take the, the, uh, the rest of that money that you think belongs to me and that's going to go into God's work. He said the only trouble he got in when he decided to do this is uh, he hadn't consulted Barbara, his wife, yet. <laughs> And that turned out to be a challenge. 
He said, I don't want to take, I, I only want to accept 50% of what I'm offered, never more. And Barbara said, over, my, over your dead body, <laughs> right? So I said, what'd you do about it? He said, it, it took me a couple of years. I said, did you, did you ever deviate from your words? He said, no, but we had trouble in the marriage. There was unhappiness as they worked it out until they both agreed that they'd give 50% of everything they had away. That's Frank Parker. I remembered when, when, I, when I was in seminary, I heard the guy preach and I went, man, he is really not impressive. Why are six and a half thousand people coming to listen to him every week? It had more to do with who he was. Not just the words he spoke. And so there you see the authenticity of a life lived out in front of other people, but a life lived in Christ. Ligon Duncan, who's another big wheel, um, says, when you give, he's addressing that phrase, when you give. A uh, couple, three realities. First, the Lord requires us to give. Second, if you give, give to the glory of God, not your own reputation, so that people may not see what you give. But give so that the church can dispense mercy through what you gave them. And then third, give as an act of worship to the Lord. Those are Ligon Duncan's three things. And then last, R.C. Sproul, because this church started out with R.C. Sproul, so I thought we should end with R.C. Sproul tonight. He's reflecting on Psalm 24, 1. The, the, the earth is the Lord's and, and all its fullness. He said, as stewards, we don't, own the home. We hold it and dispense it for the master. He quotes Malachi 3.10, bring tithes to the storehouse. And Sproul says that is so that we can dispense giving since the storehouse, in his mind, that was not also not the church. He was saying that's that place where you don't touch that money, that money goes to the Lord somehow. So Sproul was trying to say, you don't have to give 100% of your giving all the time to the church. That was, that's the way he, but you have to give it to mission organizations or charities or what have you. You have to dispense it for the Lord's work. When we talk about it later on, probably in the fall, We'll get in a lot more detail, and we're going to talk about what the law said, what what the Bible says in terms of giving. But I thought you ought to see that that a priority for us implementing James's words are to give. <coughs> giving should be a normal part of our worship. Some people will, you know, we can get into the discussion of how much. But I didn't want to go there to start with. I'd rather start with it's better, better for any believer to give. And we can, you can set out whether you think the Ten Commandments or the, the Old Testament law applies literally or what. I don't think we need to talk about that too much right now. 
the point on giving is still there. And the one thing that um, I would point out, though, is that when Jesus reflected on the tithe, which was 10% of what you have, uh, Jesus always managed to suggest that we that the 10% is our minimal giving, not our maximum. I'm not saying you got to do that. I'm just saying if you're looking to Jesus to bail you out, <laughs> like, you know, well, the Old Testament is really tough. If I go to Jesus, he'll, he'll go easy on me. How about no? No, if anything, he ups the ante. So I'll leave you with that, that um, we're called to love God with passion, with our lives, with our relationships, and with everything we have. And because we are, one of the practical applications for that is giving. When I left my first church after three years and went happily, ended up going well, the one significant criticism I got from my deacons was, you never, had, you never had a sermon about money. So I made it through three years and never, never brought it up. So on my way out, I was convicted that you shouldn't ignore it. It, it has a place. I was just sort of responding against people that acted more like vultures than ministers. So it should be brought up, but... We shouldn't idolize that money either. And I'll end with Jim Elliott's quote, which is on the back of your bulletin. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is there a clearer way of saying what James was saying in this text? Amen? We have a close.